you would, you can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're entering a new section in the book of Acts, and this is exciting. You've got chapters 1 through 12 that have primarily focused on, on the birth of the church and the growth of the church, specifically in the context of Jerusalem. Now, I mean, there's been instances of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and Peter going to, to Joppa. But for the most part, the first 12 chapters have focused on Jerusalem, the surrounding area, and there's lots of focus on Peter and John. But this new section, chapters 13 through 28, for the rest of the book, we're going to see the advance of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. We're going to move away from Jerusalem and move towards cities like Antioch, which will become the new hub of missions. Names like Peter are going to recede into the background, and another will take the limelight, the Apostle Paul. That former enemy of the church we are about to see becomes its greatest missionary, And we'll see his missionary journeys in this second half. And of course, this understanding of Acts makes complete sense. Because when you think of the last words that the Lord Jesus told his disciples before ascending into heaven, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said this would happen, and we're seeing it happen. The church expand from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. Now, if the church is expanding, what is the inverse of that? What's the opposite? If the church is expanding, what is receding? We might naturally think like, oh, there's, it's just a world of neutral ground. It's not black and white, just a world of gray, neutral ground, and the church is gaining this neutral ground in a gray world. But that's not the case. As the Lord Jesus takes ground, the devil loses that same ground. The whole world has been covered in darkness, except for Israel. The light to the nations, this light in darkness... God has, they are His special covenant people. And now they are going out. No longer an island in a sea of unbelief, but taking territory from the enemy. The Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 4 says that the God, that's a lowercase g, the the God of this world has blinded the minds of, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But now light is going out. And these little lights are beginning to pop up everywhere. Uh, I remember last November, uh, Molly and I were flying from Nashville to D.C. And we got on a plane. And I'm the... I'm the guy who's like glued to the window, like looking out at everything. Some people shut the window. They don't want to see anything. I'm glued to it, just watching, seeing high school football fields down below me. And I, I love it. 
And we'd leave Nashville, and we'd do so at night, and the lights were great. And then once we got more towards eastern Tennessee and Kentucky, everything got dark. And then especially after we went over uh, the Appalachian Mountains, just pitch black darkness. But as we started to move towards northern Virginia, lights began to pop up. And then as we kind of descended into D.C., more lights everywhere. And then as we're landing, you could see the Washington Monument lit up. It was, it was really cool. That's what we're seeing here as the church is going forth. Darkness is being pierced by light. And there, these lights of the knowledge of the glory of God are starting to pop up everywhere. And today we see a light pop up on the island of Cyprus. Eyes will be opened. The enemy will lose ground. And that happens on the island of Cyprus. So we're going to see that, but first let's pray. Father God, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul that our enemy blinds the, the minds of the unbeliever. And Father, he, he still will attempt to deceive and to lead away your people. So, Father, this morning we ask that we would see the truth of, of the gospel, that your word would be opened to us and our, our minds would be opened to it, and that your spirit would work through it in a mighty way, that we would better see the Lord Jesus and we would turn our eyes on him and praise his name. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to uh, Cilicia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mists and darkness fell upon him, 
and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we are picking up where we left off in chapter 11 back in Antioch. In chapter 11, we saw the the birth of the Gentile church in this city. Antioch is a massive city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You can't say, I, I almost said it was the third largest city in the world. Probably not true. China just dwarfs everyone uh, they always have. Um, but for the Roman Empire, this is the third largest city behind Alexandria and Rome. This is a major cosmopolitan area. And there's also uh, the church in Antioch uh, reflects its city. It, it is a city that is ethnically diverse. And we see that in the, in the leaders that Luke names here uh, in verse 1. And we're told their names. Uh, we start off with Barnabas. We've met Barnabas before. We met him all the way back in chapter 4 when he sold a field and gave the proceeds to the church. Uh, Barnabas is a nickname that was given to him. His real name is Joseph. But they started to call him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. And that nickname gives you a good picture of who he was, his character. He's also a native of Cyprus. So they're going back home to his island today. We don't know for certain uh, why they chose Cyprus. Maybe Barnabas is like, well, I know it. Let's, let's go back to my home. So you've got Barnabas. You also have Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, Niger is a Latin term which means black. Uh, This suggests that Simeon had black skin. He was an African, uh, most likely sub-Saharan, maybe from the kingdom of Ethiopia. And yet he is uh, there. He has been brought to Antioch and is a leader in the church, though it's surely a long way from home. Lucius of Cyrene, another African. He was from North Africa, is there as a leader and teacher in the church. Then one of the most interesting is Menaean. We're told that he is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is not the Herod we saw last week who gets up and bloviates and then accepts their worship and is struck down by God. This is, again, there are lots of Herods in the Bible. This is the Herod who beheads John the Baptist. The Herod that Jesus refers to as the fox. Menaean grew up with him. They grew up in the same house. It's very much like Moses being raised in Pharaoh's palace. And then receiving the best education in the world and having all the riches of the, the king at his fingers and he leaves it all and goes out into the wilderness. I'd say the same is true of Menaean. But he doesn't do so on his own. Surely God rescued this man. God sought him and drew him 
to himself. And he ends up in a very different place uh, than his childhood friend, Herod the Tetrarch. And then last on this list is Saul. And, and did you notice, this is the first mention of the name Paul. We, we talked about this before, that Paul is his Gentile Roman name. Saul is his Hebrew name. There's this tendency we have to say that, oh, well, after, after he's converted on the Damascus Road, God changes his name from Saul to Paul. It's not the case. He's continually referred to as Saul. And it makes sense. If he's in Jerusalem ministering around Jews, he's going to use his Hebrew name. But now that his missionary work to the Gentiles is beginning, he's taking on a Gentile form of his name. Kind of in the same way, if, if I uh, was a missionary in France, I would take on the name Jean. Or if I was in Mexico, I would be Juan. It's the, it's the same thing. And, and uh, if I... Just move over to using Paul in this, uh, in this text. You'll, you'll forgive me uh, because it's, it's mentioned in this text. Well, those are the leaders we're shown. But what is the church doing? The church in Antioch, we're told that they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. You remember they'd already sent an offering to Judea to help out the church to afford food in a time of famine. They've done that. And now they're saying, Lord, what would you have us to do? That's a great question for churches, isn't it? Lord, what would you have us to do? Not what do we want to do? What would you have us? We want to serve you. We want to do your will. And so they begin seeking the Lord. No doubt through prayer. uh, No doubt through searching the scriptures. But we're specifically told that they are fasting. Now, when we say the word fasting in 2021, what's, what's a word we immediately associate it with? Intermittent fasting. It's for losing weight. It's, uh, I, I need to stop eating so much, so I'm just going to cut myself off for 12, 18, 20, however many hours. Weight loss is not the reason, not the, reason the church in Antioch is fasting. Rather, they are abstaining from food so that their minds can be turned to seek the will of the Lord. Every time their stomach would just cramp or start to gurgle or make noise, they were reminded. They were reminded of the one who sustains them every day. And they were asking, Lord, what do you want us to do? We see the answer comes. It comes in verse 2. The Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's your answer. These two men, set them apart. Lay your your hands on them, symbolizing, uh, symbolizing consecration, symbolizing my blessing on them, and send them to the work I will show them. Listen, these are the best men this city has. The best men this, this church has. And the church in Antioch has, has to let them go. I mean, it's not like the church in Antioch says, all right, our interns, the ones who have been training under the big boys, we're going to send them off. The, the, the associates who have been training, we're, we're sending them off. 
It's not what happens. The best men they've got are the ones who go. And now that just that doesn't make sense to us because I'm, what are we used to? The, the, the most talented ministers, the ministers with the most influence, the ministers who have uh, the highest credentials, where are they? They're at the biggest churches in the biggest cities. And yet, Paul and Barnabas, they leave Antioch, the third largest city in the empire, to go and be missionaries. And begin a mission to Cyprus. Now, as we read, there, I know there are lots of town names that you aren't familiar with. I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible so you can stay with me. So the, the initial destination, where they're headed, is the island of Cyprus. You can get on Google Maps and you'll see it. It's in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, south of Turkey, north of Egypt. And they're beginning in Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. And Antioch is about 18 miles inland. It's not directly on the coast. But they've got to get to the coast. And that coastal city is Cilicia. That, that's the town, the port town they're going to sail out of. In the same way, if you and I are... If, if we're going to go on a cruise, where do we normally go? We'll go to Mobile, we'll go to New Orleans, maybe we'll go down to Miami and sail from there. Well, they are sailing from Cilicia. And they make a 130-mile journey to the island of Cyprus. And once they get there, they land in the town of Salamis. It's a town on this island, and there we're told that they preach In the synagogues, they go straight to the synagogues. Apart from that, we aren't given much news. Luke doesn't report a whole lot for us until they reach the complete opposite side of the island. They land on the island, make their way all the way across, and then reach the town of Paphos, and that's where we meet these two men. The first is a magician, Uh, We're told he is a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar is Aramaic for son. So, his name is Son of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a common name at the time. So, this could have been nothing. Or it could have been a claim to be the offspring of Jesus Christ. Like, oh, you want to know how I have my powers, how I have my gifts of insight and wisdom? It's because I am the son of Jesus. We're also told he was a Jew who was a magician, which that is, if you are familiar with your Old Testament, you know those things do not go together. If if you read of sorcery in the Old Testament, what do you see? It is described as an abomination. Those who practiced sorcery would receive the death penalty. And so this this idea of a Jew who is a magician, this is instantly something that is a major red flag. He's also a false prophet. So he's leading people astray. He's opposing the truth of God. We'll see that in a moment. 
We're also told that his name is uh, Elimus. And this is the meaning of his name. Kind of in the same way that Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Elimus is the skillful one. That's what this name means. And no doubt he was skilled and had some powers. Just as Pharaoh's magicians had powers, they threw their stabs on the ground too and they turned into snakes. So he's there with this proconsul. He obviously had been performing some, some use, seen as some benefit. And here there's a warning, a warning to you. Please be discerning. If you would have met this man, he would have told you, I am a prophet of the Lord. But he wasn't. He wasn't the son of Jesus. He's the son of the devil, which we'll see in just a moment. So be, be discerning. Don't just have, have your guard up. We live in a fallen world. We're all sinners, but there are those who are intentionally seeking to lead astray, um, lead people astray. So be discerning. So he's there. Bar Jesus, Elimus, he's there uh, with the proconsul when Paul and Barnabas arrive. Then you have Sergius Paulus. This is the other man. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul. This is the Roman official who is in charge of governing this island. So this is the head government official on the island. We're told that he was a man of intelligence. I think it's important Luke mentions that because we can see that this isn't some rube who's just falling for some silly tricks of a magician. This is a man of intelligence, a man of great understanding. And, and we're reminded that human wisdom, even the best, is frail. And we can easily be deceived. On our own, we cannot resist the, the cunning of the devil. And wisdom and light and true knowledge come only from the Spirit of God. But God is working. God is working in this man's life, and he hears of Barnabas and Saul and summons them to come and hear the word of God. But the magician has a problem with this. Paul begins to speak, and the magician interrupts. We're told that he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith wanted him to remain in darkness. Why? Well, on the surface level, he's worried about financial loss. I mean, he's, surely he was paid and compensated for this position. If the proconsul wises up, he's going to lose uh, his income. Also, if the proconsul wisens up, he's going to lose his influence. He's not going to have this governor's ear anymore. It's so on the very surface level, there are these things that are important to him. Money, influence, power. But on a deeper level, there is something else going on. And it's the work of the devil. 
And this, this man is a tool in his hands, just trying to crush this seed of faith. You know, R.C. Sproul tells this story about after he came to faith. Uh, he came to faith in Christ his first semester of college. And he was so excited and he's talking to everyone. And he can't wait to go home and talk to his pastor. And, and he assumed that his pastor would be just as excited as he was. But this pastor was a product of theological liberalism. He didn't believe in the supernatural. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the authority of Scripture. He didn't believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, that there's only one name under heaven by which we're saved. He didn't believe that. And so R.C. is talking to him, and he's so excited. And R.C. tells him his story, and this pastor looks at him, this 18-year-old college student, looks at him with disdain and says, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, you're a damn fool. And R.C. said that he felt as though a stake had been driven through his heart. There is an attempt to crush this newborn faith. That's what we see happening here. Elimus trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord and crush this spark of faith. Well, Paul has a response, and it is strong. Um, he, he, uh, we're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks at this magician and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul doesn't do this in private. He doesn't take him aside. He rebukes him publicly. And he's not just spouting off. We're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, you are not bar Jesus. You are bar devil. You're a son of the devil. And you're doing his work. Now we see Jesus do the same thing, don't we? He uses the same language. Jesus is tender and gentle with those who were weak. And with children and those who are struggling. But when... There were leaders who had influence and power and they attempted to suppress the Word of God. He used strong language. And he called them children of the devil. Paul's doing the same thing here. This is a loving thing to do. To be honest. To shine a light on darkness and expose false belief. To expose false assurance. A false assurance that could lead someone to eternal separation from God. This is a loving thing to do. I've got some fun trivia for you. What do you believe is the most famous sermon in American history? The most famous one. Maybe your mind goes to Billy Graham and some address he gave. It wasn't Billy Graham. I'm not sure what you might uh, call, but if you ask, this is, and this, by the way, this is not subjective. This is an objective fact. The greatest sermon in American history 
I've got a little pamphlet right here. This is it. I've got. You need to order a copy. But I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to draw out the. I'm going to draw out the suspense a little bit. The greatest sermon ever preached in American history was preached of all places in Connecticut. Can you believe that? Connecticut. This little town called Enfield in 1741. There was a great awakening. In church history, it's known as the First Great Awakening, and it's sweeping through New England. People are believing in Jesus Christ. People are coming to faith. They're zealous for the Word of God. People are confessing their sins. And it's just sweeping all across this area. But there's one little village that's holding out. There's this one little island of darkness in the Connecticut countryside that's holding out and remaining in unbelief. The the people there were described as thoughtless and vain. They were stubborn to the message of the gospel, and these are the inhabitants of Enfield, Connecticut. And so the pastor there in Enfield, he's... Sends out an invitation to another pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards comes and preaches. And the result is the most famous sermon in American history Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I grew up with a negative impression of this sermon. I think we read this in high school English, and the lesson was less than positive because this is an example of an angry, mean, no good, very bad Puritan who's just being judgmental and is just focusing all his attention on the punishment of the ungodly in the fires of hell. Now, to be fair, uh, the image of hellfire is very present, but it's not the primary focus. The primary focus of this sermon is evangelistic. It is an attempt to show people the true condition of their hearts and show them the precarious position they are in and that they need the saving work of Jesus Christ. Recognize your danger, flee from it, find shelter in Christ. That was the message. And praise the Lord, that is what happened. Uh, There's a sentence in the foreword that says this, the response of the infield congregation to the sermon was absolutely amazing. Before the sermon was finished, people were moaning, groaning, and crying out things such as, what shall I do to be saved? Edwards has to stop the sermon right there, pause it, tell them to quiet down, and also send some people to go speak and pray with elders. And then he continued. Many came to faith. The light of the gospel broke through the darkness. These hardened hearts were changed, and it's because the Spirit was at work. You know, when you imagine someone preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, what do you imagine? Maybe some sweaty, screaming YouTube preacher just banging on the pulpit. That was not Jonathan Edwards. Eyewitnesses 
wrote that he wasn't ranting, he wasn't raving, he used little to no gesture with his hands, he read the sermon very closely to his manuscript, and when he did look up from his manuscript, he would fix his eyes on a rope in the back of the room. It was the rope attached to the the bells, the church bells. And he would stare at that rope and in a gracious tone warn the people of their danger. The sermon is strong language. It's loving language. Because it woke people up to their peril. It pointed them to the Savior. And the same is true with Paul's words here. To Elimus, the magician, or to anyone following him. There is a need to be rebuked, to be warned of the danger they will surely meet if they continue down this path. We see God intervene. Elimus is struck blind. We aren't told that his heart is pricked. But we are told that he goes blind. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. How how ironic is that? That that this man who has this vision and this gift of foretelling the future is having to be led around by the hand because he can't see the thing in front of him. There's a word of grace here. Because we're told he was unable to see For a time. So unlike Herod last week, Herod is struck dead. This man is struck blind, but it's temporary blindness. Could have been a wonderful opportunity. An opportunity to repent. I mean, the last thing he'd seen was Paul preaching. And there's an opportunity here to repent and turn to Christ. Or he could remain hardened. And if that was the case, then this blindness is just a foretaste of the outer darkness he would come to know. We don't know what happened to the magician. But we do know what happened to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. He believed. The governor of this island comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. If we don't read that carefully, we might think he saw this man struck blind and that woke him up to believe. That's not what Luke writes. Luke says the thing that impresses him is the teaching of, of the Lord, the doctrines of grace, God's love for sinners, who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, these central truths of the faith, the one that the magician was trying to make crooked, these have astonished him. And for so long, he'd been told, he'd been told what he had to do, and what he couldn't do in order to be right with God. For the longest time, he'd been given these lists and rules to do this, follow this perfectly, and you'll be good with God. 
Follow this list and you will earn his favor. Follow this list and you will merit your ticket into heaven. But now he hears something completely different and he is astonished. He hears the gospel. That it's not about what you have and have not done. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. I want to end with a quote from Holiness. Uh, This is a book we were studying on Wednesday nights. This is a uh, paraphrase of something we read this past week. Reminds us of the depth of what our Lord has done and continues to do. This is what astonished him. What has Jesus Christ done? He has suffered in your place and died for you on the cross. He has redeemed you from the guilt, the power, and the consequences of sin by His blood. He has called you by His Spirit to knowledge of Himself, repentance, faith, hope, and holiness. He has forgiven all your many sins and blotted them out. He has freed you from the captivity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He has taken you from the brink of hell, placed you in the narrow way, and set your face towards heaven. He has given you light instead of darkness, peace of conscience instead of uneasiness, hope instead of uncertainty, and life instead of death. This is what he has done. What is he still doing? He is daily washing away your many shortcomings and infirmities. He is pleading the cause of your soul before God. He is daily supplying all the needs of your soul and providing you with hourly provision of mercy and grace. He is daily leading you by His Spirit. He is bearing with you when you are weak and ignorant. He is raising you up when you stumble and fall. He is protecting you against your enemies. And He is preparing an eternal home for you in heaven. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and what He is doing for His people. And that's what astonished Sergius Paulus. And I would end by asking Does it astonish you? Look to him and believe. Let's pray. Father God, how glorious is the truth of the gospel. Father, would it enrapture our vision? Would it change our life? Would it change everything about us? Would would the goodness and mercy of God make such a profound impact on us that we would never be the same. That we would be those who stand firm in any weather because you, our God, love us and have brought us near and are with us. Through deep waters, through, through raging fires, and every other storm of life, you are always near and we need not be afraid. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.